Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We live in an individualistic culture, society. Everything that we experience today is designed to focus on you. We worship at the altar of individualism. So every advertisement you see, um, every, the way you have been conditioned in society is to focus on yourself. And that is very harmful for how we experience the scriptures, All right? So I want us to put on a mindset, a community mindset that's ancient, a 2,000-year-old mindset. How would the church 2,000 years ago, how would they have experienced what we're reading and experiencing today? And in order for us to do that, we have to recognize that they had a community mindset. So if you, what we don't know is, is how many people were in a gathering, but we know it was probably like 15 to 20 people. So it's like this section right here. We would have been the church receiving this letter and it would have been written by a guy named John. We would have had a relationship to him and we would have been in a house most likely gathering maybe 15, 30 people um, in Ephesus. And what we do know about Ephesus is because it was a very diverse community, 250,000 people, that people would have um, experienced the word differently. There would have been in the church Romans, there would have been Greeks, there would have been Jews, there would have been Gentiles, there would have been women, there would have been men, there'd be people that were literally leaving cults um, and and very unique cults that were very sexual. Um, There would have been people that were Jewish and and had particular views about what they eat and what they wear. and, and, And they would have all been crammed into this community called church in a house. And, and, um, and there would have been really wealthy people, extremely wealthy people. There would have been really, really poor people. There would be people that spoke different language, languages. There would be people that would travel distances to get there. There would have been people that lived around the corner in the city, outside of the city. So that's what it was like. Now, also, um, it, was, it would have been read. The letter that we received would have been read out loud. And then it would be discussed in a group setting. And so for us, when we read the scripture in our Bible app or in our Bibles, it's, it, we're reflecting the theology from ourselves. And I want us to think about what it would have looked like to experience it in community, together. We would have known your, your story. We would have been celebrating Justin when he comes out. We've been praying with Sue day and night for her son. We'd be carrying the burdens of one another in such a way that that when we read this letter, names and stories are attached to it. Are you with me? So let's read it together as, as a family then, as a community. It says this, 1 John chapter three. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And that's a reference to the Old Testament. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. And anytime he says brothers and sisters, he's referring to the community of faith that have said yes to Jesus and they're gathering as Christians in a home. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possession, anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. They would have experienced this letter together. They would have experienced this, this, this letter with names, with stories. They would have understood that, that John knew their story, that, that they, would have, they would have had a different understanding, a community mindset for how to process this letter together. They would have heard it and then discussed the implications. And in our culture, when we do worship at um, the altar of individualism, what that means is everything is about you. It is about your job, your career, your family, your time off, your vacation, your 401k, your money, your bank account, your dreams, your preferences, your music, your worship style. It's all about you. But 2,000 years ago, the church was designed to be something that existed so that it were, you could live It was designed to be God's way of teaching people how to be human again. The church is God's design for teaching people how to be human again. Again, It's not designed to compete with the mall or a concert or an event that you can speculate at or spectate at, excuse me, but it's designed to be something that we participate in. It is not designed to be a cruise ship that's designed around your preferences. The idea that you can church shop is shocking. But this is the culture we live in. We have perpetuated a narcissistic, consumer-oriented, individualistic-driven community in the church. But it's designed to be this, this thing, this organic life organism that teaches people how to be in right relationship with God, right relationship with themselves, and right relationships with each other. We, we are allowed to thrive or survive in the world without each other. But we've made it this, this cruise ship rather, rather than a battleship or a sailboat where everyone has a responsibility, everyone has something to do, everyone has a role to participate in. When we come, we show up, we give, we pray, we participate, we worship, we, we share life together because that's what the church has been designed to be from its inception. And from its inception, the church confessed that this guy from a small town outside of Galilee, this day worker was not only the Messiah, savior of the world, he was the son of God. And he died in human history. And he was raised from the dead and he reigned. And this community with that confession didn't have temples or buildings or political power. They didn't have websites or Instagram accounts. All they had were each other and the Holy Spirit. And occasionally, these leaders would send these letters and they would come around these letters and they would, they would discuss its meaning and purpose and they would try to live out what was said in these words and try to be a testimony to the world 
by how they lived. The community was designed to reflect the nature and character of God. The community was designed to live in such a way with one another that when people on the outside looked in, they would say, there is a God. Look at how they live. Look at how they treat one another. Look at how they share. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they love one another. This is what we are a part of. This is the church. This is both the invitation and the challenge to the garden. As we move forward in this journey, we need each other to figure this life out. Are you with me? I want you to put on that mindset and the testimonies were helpful for that because most of us don't really know each other. I want to just do, I'm going to ask you to risk for a second. Let's do this. Are there any of you here that are currently in a situation where you aren't able to provide for your basic needs? And I'm going to ask you to take such a vulnerable risk and just put yourself out there that you were like Charles, that weren't, you weren't able, you're homeless and you didn't have enough money for rent or you couldn't afford the medical bill or the car payment or our gas. Would you stand where you are? If you're, I, want, I know it's a huge, if your family's here, would you stand? Let's just, I just want to see this real quick. Let's just stand. Any other need, like basic essential needs. Now look at this. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable. Everyone take a look. Take a look. Look at who's standing. It's not to shame anyone. This has to be a community that says, on our watch, we all have enough. And it doesn't need an email. It doesn't need to be facilitated through a social media. It needs to be a person with flesh and bone that you said, what do you need? I got it covered. All of you can come forward. We have people that gave from the last service that would love to provide for those needs practically. In this community, the challenge before we even get into the text is know who they are and take care of your brothers and sisters. Amen? Thank you so much. You can grab a seat. Now, thank you for your courage. That was so vulnerable. And I'm sure there's some of you that are here and you wouldn't, even want to stand. My wife and I have been in that situation early on. Would you stand now if you have all of your needs met? If you don't have to worry about where rent's coming from. Some of us don't even know how much milk costs or diapers or eggs. We always buy it without thinking. Look it. So now we're learning about ourselves. We're learning about the community. We don't know everyone's name. We don't know your background. We don't know your story. We don't know how much you have. But we know that there are people that are sitting in this gathering that don't have enough. And some of us do. Are you with me? Look around, grab a seat. Thank you so much. How do we live together in a community and learn how to become the kind of community that is a witness to God's resurrection? I believe that this passage is key for understanding how to do this. If we just live this passage out, I believe we will find ourselves on the road to becoming a community that the way we live together is a witness to what God is like. You with me? So 1 John 3, let's just look through this. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, we should love one another. So John, again, is constantly reiterating the same message. It's like he's got one uh, note in his drum. All he does is hit one beat. That's just a kick drum over and over again. The the way we, we are to live out this Christian faith is to love one another. That's the message that John repeats. It's so obnoxious, it's so boring. You'd think you'd get a little more creative, but that's it. Over and over again, love one another, love one another. And that's what he's doing again 
again for like the fifth time in the third chapter. We're already here again. Last week we looked at we can't really love one another without receiving God's love. But this is the message that John wants to reiterate, that the, the Christian life is centered on the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah. He came in human flesh, died on the cross physically, was raised from the dead physically. And the way as Jesus followers to live out his message is we are to love one another and become holy. That's it. That's the story of 1 John. So here we are. He's reiterating what love is and our call to it. He gives this allusion back to Genesis chapter 4 about Cain murdering his brother. And he says the world will hate us because it hated God. He's, he's talked about this. And he goes, go to ch- uh, verse 14. Then he gives us another example of what love should look like. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So once again, John is is bringing this dualistic perspective to the world that there are true Jesus followers and those who are not true followers of Jesus. So, so far we've heard that he's talked about those that have love for the world compared to those that have love for the Father. Remember that? Those who are children of the devil and those who are children of God. I gotta remember what he said. And then those who um, remain in death and then those who have life. And it's a continual present tense. So when he says, we know that you have love if you, uh, uh, you know that you have passed from death to life, excuse me, if you love one another. So the, the sign of moving from death to life in a continual present tense, which means this, that in this life, currently, you are passing from death to life. You are experiencing eternal life in this real time. That which is promised for eternity, which will happen once and for all when Jesus comes back and restores all things, you are experiencing that here and now, passing from death to life, if you love one another. As psychologists call it, it's observed behavior change. It's that simple. How do we know if you are embodying the message of Jesus? You love one another. Okay, good. You, you good to go? <laughs> but I love it. He's giving us this, this beautiful picture that you remain in death when you don't love. This, this message is not about some intellectual concept or belief system that you can walk around living your life as it once was. You were dead and now you're alive. And that has dramatic implications for how you live this stuff out. But we have perpetuated a system that is more pharisaic than Christ-like in the church. And it's that you can continue to live the life that you once lived in death because it's all built around your preferences. And you didn't, Jesus didn't call the church to that. And we're not gonna perpetuate that system at the garden. And if you wanna shop around from churches, it's so great. We can recommend Long Beach Christian Fellowship, Park Crest Church, there are some great churches. And I'm sure you won't be satisfied there either. (laughs) Next week, we have the lead pastor of Parkcrest speaking, so you'll have to let him know. He's an amazing leader in our city. He's an incredible teacher. He's a great friend. And and the reality is we're we're a church of the city. And if you want to shop around, you're going to have to go to another city. So all my Sill Beachers are like, fine, I'm out. Just kidding. Just kidding. Seal Beach in Orange County is welcome. We're so glad you're here. The point is that we, we experience this life by participating in it. And so love is an, the example of how do we know someone 
moves from death to life as a true follower. It's based on how they love. It's based on them loving others. And then it goes on to define. He defines what love is. And I love this passage because you'll never not know how to treat a brother and sister in Christ. I tell married couples, the gift of Paul in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21 is you'll never not know how to treat your spouse ever again, no matter what situation it is. You will never not know how to treat your roommate when they steal the half of your Chipotle burrito in the fridge with signs on it that said, if you eat, I will murder you. Darren, 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 you will not know in that situation in real time, once you discover in, out of hunger that it's no longer there, the rage comes up from your belly, you will, and then you go to confront the person that's living in the room with you. It could be your spouse, but if it's not you, will not, you will know how to treat that person. You will know how to treat your spouse when you're in a heated argument and you know you're right and you know they're wrong and all you want to do is prove your point. All you want to do is, is show them how wrong they are. You will never not know how to treat that person in real time. Because the church, those that say yes to Jesus, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus is the model for love. Jesus is the model for life. His death is a model for living. Paul works it out in community in a different way. So, okay, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to lay down my life. Okay, so that means if someone, one of you is outside and a bus comes by, I gotta push you away and jump in and save your life. I get, I get that very arbitrary image of death. Okay, that's what, that, Paul works it out in a very practical way when it deals with community, when he's talking to one of his churches in Philippi. In, in a, a Philippians chapter two, he says this, um, if there, therefore, if you, have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then. So what Paul says here is, look, if you've ever experienced any kind of good in the church, if you've ever had, you know, any revelation of Jesus, if you've ever felt comforted, if you felt his presence, if, if you had any connection to God at all, at all, then... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing, not some things, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who although was God, did not consider equality with God and said he as something to be taken advantage of, but emptied himself to becoming a servant and follow God obedient, obedient to the cross. So, so Paul's practical instruction for the local church is to have the mindset of Christ to, to, in your relationships with one another, with your parents, with your in-laws, with your kids, with your friends, with the people that are sitting in this room. The way we are to treat each other is like Christ's treats us, to value each other above ourselves, to look out for each other's interests, to love each other in a tangible and practical way where we have the mindset of Christ. Is love is laying down your rights. Love is laying down your need to be right. Love is laying down the way you do things. Love is laying down your preferences. Love is, is laying down your ideas, your dreams, your desires. Love is considering others before yourself. Love is not some lofty existential system of thinking. It is a very practical, 
practical, rooted in the everyday, ordinary existence. Love operates for the sake of other people. This is what Paul says, and this is what John is saying, that love is better, and it's self-giving, it's not self-centered. Love is sacrificial, and love is messy. This is what we're called into in this passage. If you, at some point in your life, have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and you thought, oh, that just means I can say yes to him and live my life accordingly, and one day I get zapped up into heaven or whatever it is, that's an inaccurate view of what, the, what it means to be Christian. God loves you as you are. You don't have to change to earn his love, but he invites you into experience life the way he designed it. And the way he designed it is this kind of love, not just for him, but for other people. I know it's heavy, right? <laughs> just like, what, what do you do with this? All week long, I felt miserable. <laughs> I'm just reflecting on this text going, gosh, this is so heavy. How on earth do you live this out? With when I, I just, it's, it's just revealed all of my brokenness and sin and self-centeredness, which I have a list of in just a few moments I'll share with you. <clears throat> but this is what we're invited into. And, and then, then, so that's love. So the definition of love is that that. Jesus has laid down his life and we ought to do that for others. So then John goes even further and he makes it very clear. He makes it very specific. He makes it very tangible and practical. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So he makes another distinction. So how do we know the love of God is in that person? By by how you care for those in our community with needs. How, excuse me, as a church, do we know the love of God is in us, is with us, is here? By taking care of each other's needs. Douglas Jones writes this, and I've shared this earlier in the series. I love this passage, or this this. Um, kind of summary. He says in Dismissing Jesus, which is a great book. I recommend it. It's called Dismissing Jesus, How We Evade the Cross. And it's quite provocative. It's challenging the middle-class American church. Um, and it, it just does a great job of, of connecting the scriptures to life today and how it kind of per, how the church has perpetuated a middle-class understanding of Jesus rather than the provocative first century uh, perspective. So he says this, here John connects love and property in a simple way. True love makes us want to ensure that every Christian has his or her needs met, food, drink, clothing, and housing. And it's a rebuke. If Christians haven't done this, if the church hasn't succeeded with this, then how can we say that we have been loving the way God commands? If we haven't taken care of Christian needs, then Christians are still infants in regards to love. That's a bit softer than John. He actually says that the love of God is obviously absent if we haven't done this. In other words, we've, we're deceived about how happy God is with us if we have yet to share enough to have no Christian poor. Notice that John didn't say whoever has a great deal of, his, of the world's goods. He's not speaking to the super rich. He's speaking to everyone with more than one cloak, to put it in first century terms. Simply put, refusing to share with a fellow Christian is a sign where we're not genuine believers. We haven't learned lesson one. Sharing food, this was the beginning of real community. Making sure each person, person had his or her needs met. 
That is the beginning of Trinity on earth. Love means as Christians, we should not be satisfied until we, the local church, have made sure that all Christians have their basic needs met and even then we will want to do more. Are you with me? This is the invitation to real life. This is the invitation for real life. And if you're here and you're comfortable with spectating and and just coming in and out of Sundays, that's fine. That's not biblical. That's not the way that this whole thing, this church thing has been designed. So I'm I'm just presenting the scriptures and saying, may we live and model what's here to our best ability with what we know the scripture's saying and with what we, how we live in our ordinary life. And all I'm hoping for is a church that says, yes, let's go for it. It's not a condemnation. It's not to figure this out and become perfect. It's to learn how to embody this message in a way that is tangible and experienced on a regular basis. In the same way, we wanna see God heal the sick, cast out demons, and do what he's done in the New Testament. We want that. We want a community that has no need among us. That is a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says, if any of you have material possessions, and you see a brother or sister in need, and you have no pity. The word pity is compassion. If you have no compassion, the word compassion uh, is a Hebrew word which is connected. The best translation in Hebrew, I love it, is womb-ish. It's the feeling a, a mom has for the unborn child. And it's to be moved from within. It's to be moved from within in such a way that you're, it's like the, the language is your, your bowels are twisted and turned inside. It was compassion that touched the leper. It was compassion that raised Lazarus from the dead. It was compassion that healed the sick and casted out demons in Jesus. Jesus was filled with compassion and it's compassion that moves the church to a place where it uses its resources, us, the church, we use our resources for the good of others. If you don't have compassion, then the love of God is not in you. So it says that we are to be moved with compassion, which moves us into action. I'm gonna share some practical stuff at the end of this, but I wanted to just share with you the verse that really inspired our church. Um, Seven years ago, we started this missional project with a handful of people out of Rock Harbor. And then a year later, we launched the Garden Church. I mean, we were just a handful of people, but from its inception, we had this verse kind of going, we, we taught through it like every week. And it was Acts chapter two, verse 42. Uh, and it was the first picture of the church. It's what, what Luke kind of marks as, this is, this, these were the, the identifying markers of the early church when it was born into existence, when it was filled with the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus. This is what it looked like. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This was the marker of the church. The marker of the church was that the people of God gathered together. They worshiped him. They prayed together. They ate in homes. They praised in temple courts. They, but also a marker of the church was that they saw everything in common. What that meant was that people that had enough shared with those that didn't have enough. That they didn't see 
the resources that God provided for them as theirs, they saw as ours. And they used their properties, their resources, their, their relationships to care for one another in such a way that the outside looking in saw something unique about the church. And this has been the dream from the beginning. First century church, people want to think it was a commune. It was not a commune. People weren't selling everything and living on the streets. That's not what it's, it, it's not in, implying that at all. And what we see, sociologists and historians have recognized that there were wealthy people that shared a lot of their wealth and poor people that shared what they had. And they coexisted together in such a way that, uh, that there were no needs among them. It, it was just a way of looking at all of the resources that you have in life and saying, uh, we, 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 have to, we have to make sure that the basic needs are met. That's it. And the thing is, it's not that revolutionary. It's only revolutionary because all of us are worshiping at an idol of individualism. And we look at this passage and we think, oh man, that's a real miracle. It's not a miracle. It's very easy. If all you did was have the interests of others in your heart, it would be so easy. If all you did was say, all my resources are God's, they've been given to me from him, and my job is to steward them and care for those in my direct relationships, my, my circle of community, which includes outsiders, which includes people that don't look like me because that's what the church was, then it would be easy. It'd be practical. We'd care for those needs. We wouldn't have needs if we learned how to do it. And this is the dream. Could you imagine a church today? Could you imagine what it would look like if we took these things practically and we said rent paid for, mortgage payment paid? Imagine if there was no debt in this church. Imagine what a testimony that would be to the world. If we said, all right, our goal is to be debt-free as a church. I was in college and, and I read about this church in Riverside that literally in over seven years paid the debt of its members. They just shared. They just gave above and beyond and paid off all debt. That, talk about year of Jubilee. I want you to dream with me for a second. Seven years ago, the dream was be a community in the city that lived in such a way that people on the outside would see Jesus by how we lived and treated each other. To participate in the way of sharing. How do we participate in the way of sharing? How do we grow in the way of sharing where our resources, our lives are given away for others? That's where I wanna leave you today in a hopeful anticipation that you will build a community with us that looks more like the scriptures we read than a concert or an event or a mall. A community that lays down its preferences and rights and desires and dreams for the sake of each other. That's what it says in the scripture. I don't know how it's gonna happen other than us learning how to do it together and us saying, I'm in, let's figure it out. I'll tell you what, here are 20 reasons why it won't happen. So I was reflecting this week and it became really practical. I was like, okay, Lord, what are you doing? How do I, like, so the first thing that came up was what keeps me from doing this? What keeps me from putting all of my resources on the table and saying, okay, God, I want to do whatever you have with it. All my dreams of owning a home and retiring and, and, and trout, like all the stuff that I have, like what if I just put it on the table and say, God, it's all yours and I will be obedient to you if you say it. Because what keeps me from that? Well, here's my list. And I don't know, maybe you have a shorter list than me, but here are 20 reasons why we don't participate in the way of sharing. Selfishness. I'm just gonna list these. Comparison, I'm constantly comparing my, where do I fit into society with my friends? I keep up with the Joneses. Entitlement, this is the worst one in my opinion. It's that we think we deserve it or we've earned it. 
I've earned this time off. I've earned this vacation. I've earned this X, Y, Z. I've earned these shoes. I've earned this stuff. I've worked hard. It's all me. I, I'm entitled to this stuff. Complacency, busyness, materialism, material, defining ourselves by what we have, by our, our success. We feel better about ourselves when we have more stuff or not even the stuff, but we have access to get the stuff. I'm just speaking for myself. Sorry, I'm preaching to the mirror. Whew. Materialism, busyness, preoccupied with other things. We're lazy. I'm lazy. We have a fear of not having enough. This is a big one. Well, Lord, if, I, if I'm obedient to giving more than 10% of my income away and sharing this amount of stuff, I don't know if I'll have enough down the road to be taken care of. That's just me. Uh, fear of what others might think. And this is another one. So it's, it's not only fear of what others might think of you, but let's say I did decide to give up certain things, dressing a certain way, buying certain Apple products. I, I want to control the narrative. I want people to know I'm choosing not to have that stuff. I'm choosing to dress a certain way in order to reflect these convictions rather than just doing it and not caring about what people think. Anyone else struggle with that? Okay, just me again. A few of us, six of us, good. There's a few more that I came up with, lack, uh, desire for control. This is a big one. We don't give because when we do give, we want to control the give. We want to have strings attached to the money. It's followed by like a lecture of how the money should be used. Anyone? Yep, do that, especially parents. Just kidding. Um, lack of compassion, lack of authentic community. We don't give because we're not living in community with people. Not only are we not living in authentic community with other people, but they're not living in authentic community with us. So they don't even know our needs because we're not, li- we're not sharing that openly. And we don't know the needs of others because we're not sharing openly about our life. How did this work itself out in the first century? They knew each other. They shared, not, I'm not just talking about physical needs, I'm talking about emotional needs, pain and brokenness. How are we supposed to live this life out unless we share that openly with one another and learn to become a place that's healed and healing? L- lack of authentic community. It's critical spirit, stingy spirit, lack of creativity, it's costly, it's not easy. We find our identity in wrong things and indifference. All the reasons why I won't, want to or why I struggle with participating and taking seriously the scriptures and living it out practically. Now I want to end with steps. So I've reflected a lot this week and I was trying to think of ways that imagine, okay, so this is what I was thinking. What if you were saying yes to this? You read Acts 2, you read First John, you're like, okay, I'm saying yes. I'm going to say yes to living a life of generosity, participating in the way of sharing in a Christian community how might you grow towards a life in that direction? I was thinking, how have I learned to grow in this? Because I, I, my wife and I have taken steps to move towards generosity. We're trying to live this thing out. But also, how might we make some practical steps, some guidelines for the church to move forward practically and tangibly? So this is for those that are saying yes. If you don't want to say yes to it, you don't have to listen to this. But this is, this is, I was thinking like a mechanic. What are practical ways we can move towards the way of sharing where the end result is there are no needs. Everyone sees their possessions as gods and we're sharing with one another. We're living a life of abundance 
hands, people are looking at us going, gosh, there must be a God. Look at how the garden loves one another. So if we say yes, what will get us there? So we'll start over here. I'm using this as the journey, the steps of faith. Here we go. So how to grow in the way. Number one is the gratitude perspective. If you're here and you think you've earned it, you deserve it, you're entitled to it, or you had anything to do with it, you're wrong. (laughs) Even if you worked hard, God gave you the capacity to work hard. You've been given opportunities and relationships that have nothing to do with you. Everything comes from God. All of life is a gift. And if you don't start by saying, I don't deserve it, I didn't do anything for it, it's all his, then you're gonna miss the boat. None of the, none, nothing else matters on this continuum. It has to begin with recognizing that all comes from him. Whatever little we have or whatever abundance we have, it's all his. So from that perspective, we move to the next perspective, which is stewardship. And here's what I believe, because in Genesis, there's all sorts of implications about stewardship, that God called us to care and rule over creation, that he gave us talents and money and relationships and social cap- or mental capital, intellectual capital, all sorts of gifts and resources to give away, and we're called to steward that. So here's my, my advice in all things, and I give this for all the people that I counsel in premarital. I say, if you don't live on a budget, you're living in sin. That's pretty hard, Right? But what I mean by that is this, that you, (laughs) I believe it's true. Just kidding. I do believe it's true. I believe as followers of Jesus that you should know where your resources go before they go. Even if you have an abundance and you don't think about your resources, I believe you should be thoughtful in where the resources go. I see this in the scripture. I believe you should give an account. My wife and I, since we've been married, she is the guru of budgeting and living below our means. Um, and, and I was not, I got married. And I was like, whoa, this is like crazy, but I learned how to do it. We have an Excel spreadsheet for every month we've been together since we've been married over eight years of where every dollar has gone since we've been together. Because we take, she takes seriously that we are called to steward. I've learned to take seriously that we are called to steward our resources. And if the goal is gener- a generous lifestyle, then we have to start with how we budget our resources and where the money goes. Are you with me? Is this helpful? Dave Ramsey is amazing at this. We're doing financial peace in the fall. And if you've never taken that class, it's an amazing class. You learn how to budget, how to get out of debt and all sorts of stuff. But you can't live towards generosity unless you know how much money and resources you have. You with me? Okay. So uh, spend less than you make. Some of you, that's really good news. I want to encourage you. Don't, don't extend your budgets. Don't, don't put things on credit cards. Spend less than you make. You with me? Now it's getting really serious. I can tell. I can feel it. Shoot, he's talking about money. If you're here and you think I'm, this message is about giving a, a money to the church, I'm not saying that. And if you think that that's what I'm asking, I want to challenge you to give to another church and see how fruitful your life will be by just that, okay? Okay, so let's go back. Or, or give to something else, not to the garden. But here's my point. You should, you should save 10%. This is basic. If you want to be generous, save, save money and give 10% to a local church. This is my thing that I put on here. It's not, it's not a, uh, a New Testament. I need to tell you, it's not a New Testament principle. Um, you see tithe in the Old Testament. And if you take tithe seriously, it's actually, they gave about 33% of their income. Um, 10% went to the Levites. That's a side note. I say give 10% because that, that do, is that generous? For some of you, 10% of your income is so generous, it's beyond your means. Don't give 10%. Give 1%. Give 2%. A tithe is giving consistently and regularly. 
I think the goal is to give 10% to a local community. That's what I think the goal is. That's what my wife and I model. Um, we want to model generosity, but we also give above and beyond that because we believe uh, we should give outside of that. So the, the starting point is here, stewardship. Go to the next slide. Is this helpful? Okay. Uh, grow in generosity. How do you grow in generosity? Tithe consistently and regularly over a lifetime. If you're someone that gives sporadically here and there to the church, I encourage you to give regularly and consistently over a long period of time and watch God not only provide for you, but watch, um, and, uh, watch your heart transform to become more and more generous. Okay, so that's part of the process. Think proactively, not reactively, and look for ways to give spontaneously. I have a friend in my life who, is, who has been so proactive in caring for my needs, just encouraging vacation. And it's like, I, it's almost frustrating at times because I'm like, gosh, I can't go on vacation right now. Give me a break. Like in like wanting to provide. But it, it inspired me to think about ways in my life that I should stop being a reactive person to generosity and being proactive some of us aren't generous because we're just waiting for people to say, hey, can I have a few bucks here? We don't have cash on us or, or you know, we don't give that, that way. Some of us need to start looking at our lives and, and thinking about the community we live in and looking for ways to be proactive givers to people. How about you provide for their needs before they say something? That's authentic community. Why don't you pray in such a way that's like, God, give me the opportunity. Oh, that person popped in my head. Okay, what what should I give? Okay, I'll give those clothes away. I'm gonna give that to them. Great, I'm gonna give that. Okay, I'm gonna do. What if that's what we were doing? Proactive is also creative. Um, We have to learn how to be creative in our generosity. Give sacrificially and it will lead to a life of generosity. This is what I've learned. And this is the hardest way to become generous. And this is the only way to become generous. Generosity doesn't, it's not about how much money you have because you can have all the money in the world and be poor. How many of you know that? And you can have no money at all and be rich with generosity. Um, Sacrificial giving is giving up part of your lifestyle to care for someone else that's in need. So many of us give out of abundance in a way that doesn't affect our paycheck. It doesn't affect the food we eat. It doesn't affect how we live that week, right? But what God invites us into, what Jesus has modeled on the cross is that sacrifice means if someone's suffering in our community, I need to suffer with them so that I can bear their pain and love them tangibly. I need to give up that, that night out or that vacation so that we have enough. That's sacrificial giving when our, our lifestyles are impacted by the community we're participating in. That's hard, isn't it? Some of you are still stuck on live on a budget. I, I totally get it. <laughs> just washing right over you. So here are ways to give. I'll just end with this. Um, this is what I've learned. And the reason I've learned it is I, I just confess that my grandma and my mom are, are the models of generosity for me. My mom brings hospitality every week still since we started and she doesn't get it paid for. It's not reimbursed. This is her, her gift. And it went from like eight people to over 500 on Sunday now. And she's like, figures out ways to be generous. My mom, my whole life, we have extra bedrooms. I have, th- I have two other brothers. We had a five bedroom house and we, my two brothers and I shared a bedroom our entire life because we had college students and families. They were always living with us. There was, there was never just one meal for five of us. There was just a meal for all of our friends to come over. That's, I didn't, that's just what we experienced. And so for me, generosity has been a marker of the kingdom life because my mom modeled it for me. And, and she taught me that you give what you do have. 
You don't give what you don't have. So for her, it was, it was always, uh, there's, there's food we have that we can share. There's, I, I might have $100, I might not have 200, but I have 100 to give. That's what we, you wanna learn how to be generous? Give what you do have, not what you don't have. You give with no strings attached. This is so important in our control, you know, in our need for control, we, we love to give where we get our, our name attached to it, where we can, we love to give to orphans. We love to give to, we all have our preferences, right? Learn to give without strings attached. That would grow you in a way, in the way of generosity. Give with joy and thanksgiving. Second Corinthians says, God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. Give with discernment and childlikeness. Discern who to give to, but also be just innocent in your giving. Uh, when someone asks for money on the street, I don't have the mind of Christ on me thinking that this is a child of God that needs love and care and support and his basic needs met. I think, how's he gonna use this money? Man, this, this is gonna take away from my eating out budget. Give with no strings attached. Give like, like a child. Proactively, not reactive. Give intentionally and thoughtfully. And here's what I wanna invite you into. You can't say no to people in the community if you have material possessions until you've said yes to God already. What do I mean? You can't just say, no, I'm not gonna do this unless you've already said yes to something else that God's invited you to give to. Does that make sense? You have to, you have to recognize that God is inviting all of you to participate in transforming this community in tangible ways with all of your resources. And if you say yes to that, then you will have to say no to some of the needs in our community and trust that the community will care for itself. I wanna invite people into our church and say, if you hang out here long enough, you'll have rent paid, you'll have enough food, you'll spiritually be met with God, you'll get prayer, you'll be a part of a family. Just come hang. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.